Good morning, church. Oh, we have sound and we're on the air. That's good. So before we get started today, I want to share something with you that the Lord put on my heart this from what's what happened last Sunday when we gathered together. Um, do you remember when I had you come forward after after the message and we gathered around here? And uh, <clears throat> Tom had said in the message that he preached about uh, faith that was a part of it and he talked about the man getting into the wheelbarrow, you know, kind of like put your money where your mouth is, so step into the, the wheelbarrow and let's see. Well, <clears throat> and so what I felt the Lord show me is that in that simple act of faith, what we were doing was far more than just stepping into a wheelbarrow. I saw a picture of these big hands and we were intentionally stepping into his hands. Now, how many of you know that's the best place in the world to be is in the hands of the Lord? And then there was, there was something else that was very significant that he told me. He said, you, you took a step of faith, but what I see is that you were giving me permission to work with your heart and to speak into your life. That's pretty big. That's pretty amazing. And then last but not least in this picture, when we took that step and we came forward, I saw the hands move from out here to here, bringing us to himself. There's a lot there. I, I just know that that was a significant thing when he gathers us and he, it was very clear, bringing his hands that we were in close to his heart. So I just want to encourage you with those words that when, he, when you take that simple act of faith, that there are powerful things that God is doing in your life and in our life corporately as a church. So having, <clears throat> so having said that today, I want to uh, just start out with a word of prayer. And so, Lord, I just want to thank you right now that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. That your word is living and active and your word will not return void. It will prosper in the thing that you send it forth to do. So, Lord, I'm asking now, I'm placing myself in your hands. I, play, I pray that I be hidden and that you would be made manifest, that you would declare your word, that it will bring forth lasting fruit, fruit that will remain, fruit that is pleasing unto you, fruit that you intend, that will glorify you, that others will see, that will encourage them, and that people would be drawn to you. Lord, open our eyes, open our ears to hear. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, <clears throat> I want to start out today with a, a little bit of humor, but it makes a, uh, and what I'm about to share, but it makes a serious point, if you will. So, <clears throat> um, I like the Three Stooges. 
And before everybody rolls their head, their eyes, and says, really, you're going to bring the three stooges into this? Of course, by Satan. <clears throat> but I want to remind you uh, in, in saying this that there is a, a point that, believe it or not, that does tie into today's message. So <clears throat> in this little snippet that I want to share with you, um, the three stooges are out west. They're out in a desert, and there's cactus out there, and there's sand. Well, Moe and Curly get into a scuffle out there, and you know, Moe kind of does his bullying thing, and that kind of, a, you know, anybody that's familiar with him, he just seems like he kind of thrives on beating up on the other two when something goes wrong. So, out here in the desert, they get into the scuffle, and Moe, shoves Curly into this big cactus that's about, oh, about six, seven foot high. And <clears throat> right away, Curly's in an immense pain. And uh, he, he calls out for help to his, his friends, Mo and Larry, to, to help me, I'm stuck. So they pull him away from the cactus and they bend him over and there his whole lower backside is filled with multiple cactus needles that are about like, like this. So, <clears throat> Mo promptly proceeds to take out a pair of pliers and, and starts to pull them out. And Larry promptly brings out a pair of scissors and just starts cutting them off. <laughs> so, <clears throat> Mo calls him on it and he says, hey, you're leaving the ends in. And Larry says, that's all right, they don't show. <laughs> so <clears throat> the point of this is that Mo is getting to the seat of the problem <clears throat> and Curly and Larry is not getting at the seat of the problem but just going through an outward show Hey, it's not showing. I'm just snipping them off. We'll get done faster. But it completely does not fix the problem. So in making the transition here, um, there are 20 verses here. There's 39 verses here. But 20 of these verses have to do with the issue of the heart and defilement. That's almost half the chapter. So that's pretty significant. And so, and <clears throat> in, in, in launching into this, if I were to characterize the, these 20 verses, I would maybe put out this question that says, clean hands or a clean heart? Which is more important? <clears throat> so as we delve into this matter, I feel that it's important to, to bring to our remembrance. Uh, the last time that I shared, I <clears throat> referenced and started at Matthew chapter 7, the last, the last two verses of uh, Matthew chapter 7, because they kind of set the table for what ensued in Matthew 8. <clears throat> and here, um, in those verses, we find... We find... These words, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority 
and not as the scribes. So there is a contrast here that Matthew is purposely pointing out to us that is going to grow, that is going to intensify, that is going to become confrontational, and ultimately it's going to become violent, and Jesus is going to be put to death. <clears throat> and as, as the chapters unfold, we, we, we see repeatedly the contrast of what the Pharisees tried to promote and, and what Jesus does in response to that. And uh, so in this chapter here, it says, then Pharisees came, and then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Now there's something important to recognize here. These Pharisees, they were from Jerusalem. This was the epicenter. This, is the, this was like where the, if you had questions, if you had problems about doctrine, if you, if you had something that you couldn't figure out in your local synagogue or town, this is where you came, this is where you went to get a final verdict, a final rendering, a, a decision, so to speak. So <clears throat> these guys are the big dogs, if you will, that are going out to meet Jesus. And this just isn't a hop, skip across town. They travel 60 miles, 60 miles to encounter Jesus. Now we've seen in preceding chapters how when, when the people in that region, how they, they knew that Jesus was there, they, they flocked to him. Great crowds flocked to him. And their expectation was met. They, he healed them. He set them free. He delivered them. He, he cleansed them like the leper. <clears throat> but these guys, here's, another, here's, a, here's another contrast. Instead of coming to want to hear about the wonderful words of Jesus, these guys are traveling 60 miles to confront them. So think about their mindset this whole time. It's not anything to do about the Lord in a good and right way. It's about how to discredit him because they saw him as a threat to who they were and their way of life and their culture. Which means they had to do something with the truth. They had to reject it. They had to suppress it. They had to hold that in unrighteousness. That scares me. Now, if you're like me, at any time you, I'll just say, if you sin, you know what the conviction of the Holy Spirit is like. And if you don't, then like David, who said, I remain silent, but God didn't let him alone. He said, your hand was heavy upon me. But I know that if I do something in my heart and I don't deal with the sin, I can't live with myself. My conscience is, is raging. I got, I got to... I have to apply the antidote, which is the blood of Jesus. I have to ask for forgiveness. But I'm saying that to say these guys, they want no part of that. They chose deliberately to reject the truth. They choose to believe a lie. They choose to hold the truth in unrighteousness because they deem that what they believe 
was on the same par, if not greater, than the commandments of God. And as we're about to see, you know, Jesus, his kingdom is advancing. It will not retreat. He's the final word. He's the final authority. And as he goes forward and marches into the land and transforms the hearts and lives of people, there is growing opposition, but he prevails. And there will be, unfortunately, an awful end to those who choose not to receive him. And he, and he speaks to that as well in this story here, in this chapter 15. So th- that kind of a heart, if you will, is dark, is blind. And Jesus references that. So they come out with the question here, after going 60 miles, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. So what does Jesus do? Jesus turns the tables on them. And Jesus, because he sees the heart. Jesus is always looking at the heart. The word of God in Hebrews chapter 4 says, is living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So the living word here is doing what? He is exposing and he is discerning and he is telling them to their face their thoughts and intents of their heart. And you would think that in doing that, that would just stop you in your tracks, would give you pause to think about what you're doing. And so... Jesus turns the tables on them and he asks them this question. And why do you, the Pharisees and scribes, break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Ouch. How dare you take the traditions of men and put them on the same level as the word of God. That's dangerous territory. You're exalting yourself as someone who did a long time ago up in heaven and said, I will be like God. And God would have none of it. And so he cast Satan out of heaven. And then he gives an example here. He takes a commandment, honor your father and your mother. And you know that the the commandment says that it may be well with you. And he tells them, he tells them to their face what they do. You're saying that no, you're saying that if you take what you give and who you are and you give it to the Lord, I can renege on my responsibilities to my parents, taking care of them financially, taking care of them with my labor, taking care of them in every way that it would be beneficial to take care of them. So that's that's a complete contradiction. A contradiction, a complete about face from what that commandment says. And he says, and you have made void the word of God. 
And, then he, and Jesus then uses a word that is only found in the New Testament, in the Gospels, 15 times. And that is the word hypocrite. As a matter of fact, it's most, most of the time it's used in the Gospel of Luke. It's mentioned a couple, uh, excuse me, the Gospel of Matthew. But it's mentioned in, in a couple other places in the other Gospels. But here in the book of Matthew, Jesus uses that word hypocrites to describe them 15 times. And that word hypocrite means to be an actor, to be a pretender. And as we'll see in later chapters, and even as we saw earlier, like in the Sermon of the Mount, um, Jesus Jesus referencing the the intent, if you will, of of the hypocrites, that they, they want to get man's approval. They want to be seen for their actions. But there's, in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus uses a whole chapter to characterize the Pharisees and the scribes. And you know that if it starts out with the word woe, I don't want to be a part of that conversation. Woe is about as serious as you can get with, you know what I'm saying? It's, that's dire. That's dire. And so, what, what, a couple, just a couple little snippets from Matthew 23. He tells them that they take all these great burdens and they put all these burdens on the people, but they themselves do not lift a finger. There's more in that chapter. There's a lot more. But the other thing is, that is significant that I think is really horrendous is that you shut up the kingdom of God in the faces of those who want to have access. Those are pretty harsh words. But Jesus is doing this in great love to, to shake them, to wake them, to, to, for them to be able to see the error of their way. But just like it says in Hebrews chapter 3, it says, Today, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. And here we see, we see the, the fallout, if you will, of hardening your heart. Michael, when he shared his message and from uh, Matthew chapter 12, Jesus warned the Pharisees about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. But if you wonder, man, did I really commit the sin against the Holy Spirit? If you, if you start to question, then I just want to encourage you with the fact that you didn't commit it. The unforgivable sin is a sustained, purposeful, have tasted and seen 
the good things of God and you distance yourself and I want nothing more to do with it. So, and him speaking to the Pharisees here, I think it's important to just uh, take a little greater detail here and ask the question, who are these guys? If you're like me, whenever the scribes and Pharisees came on the scene, I just want to boo and hiss. They're the bad guys. But I want to go back and share with you just, and, and uh, Michael did this too, by the way, when he said, how, how did things break down? What happened? Well, when, when Israel was taken into captivity and when they came back out, there were two sects that, that came out of there as well. One, um, ultimately, they would be the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But they, in that, in that way back then, it would be the Hellenizers and the, and the Hayden, Hayasadians. Anyway, when they came back from there, they didn't want to have anything to do with being defiled. They didn't want to have anything to do with um, being a part of that which, which took them into captivity. So what they decided to do was that we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna make a cushion here. We're going to add things to the law so that we don't we don't risk defilement. Now one of the things that Michael said was that they, and, and what they did do, they exalted the law above the author. They got their identity from the law and not from the author. So just let me give you one example of how meticulous this was. After every course of the meal, if you ate something, you had to wash hands. If you ate something else, before you did it, you had to wash hands. If you did something else, you had to wash hands. There was a specific amount of water that they were supposed to use. And there was a method as to which hand you were supposed to pour over. There was a position in how you were supposed to hold your hands. And the water was only supposed to come only so far down. If it went further, you defiled yourself. So I'm just, I'm saying that that is just one little law that they added. They had over 600. So can you imagine the frustration if you're trying to walk with God, please God, and you hear this? And for these guys, you know, when, when when it says in Matthew, Excuse me. When it says in Matthew that the people that sat in darkness saw a great light, referring to Jesus, you would think that the religious leaders of that day would be there to kind of point the way, to remind them, to encourage them of these prophecies that the one that the scriptures speak about is coming and that the light is going to shine, that you can have hope, that you can have life, that you can be restored, 
that you can have a relationship with God, but instead they actually contributed to the darkness. They contributed to the people having no hope. They promoted blindness. So, <clears throat> so in verse 6, excuse me, in verse 8 here, Jesus says of the, the Pharisees, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain, they do worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. Now, if you would go to uh, Isaiah 29 and 13, that's where he's quoting from. But I want to read to you the verses that come right after that. <clears throat> and this is what he says. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold... I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder. And the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. So just let me add this, interject this real quick. At the end of Matthew 11, where Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that are weary and are heavy laden, a set of verses that are very familiar to us. Jesus prays a prayer, right? before that and in that prayer he tells the father he says I thank God that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them unto babes so if you don't come with a teachable with a right heart with a heart that's desperate for God <coughs> and and so you purposely are going to to shut yourself off from seeing the wondrous things that are in the Word of God. And so as he says here, <clears throat> he's he says, their, the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, uh, you who hide deep from dark, from the Lord, ah, uh, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark and who say, who sees us, who knows us. You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? As the thing made should say of its maker? He did not make me. Or the thing formed, uh, say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful fields shall be regarded as a forest? In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord and the poor among mankind shall exalt and the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffers cease, and all who watch 
to do evil shall be cut off. And then just going on a little bit further down in there, he says, Jacob shall no more be ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale. For when he sees his children, the works of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And we can see that in different times where Jesus healed that the response of different people, they worshipped him. They glorified God. So, going on, the, the other big mistake that the Pharisees made was that they didn't understand the real intent and purpose of the law. The purpose of the law, and let me say this as we're about to get into the thing of defilement. Defilement is a biblical category. It is a biblical issue. And the book of Leviticus, for example, has much to say about it. Just look at what it has to say about the leper. And there's two or three chapters right there. So the whole issue of defilement is an important one and how it relates to sin. But, what the, but the purpose of the law was to reveal our condition. It was to be like a school bus, so to speak, that in seeing our condition was to drive us to Christ, who is the answer, who is the one who is able to bring life out of death. They never saw the relational side. They chose to miss the bus. And when you do that, as Michael said, the law becomes destructive. So then, Jesus tells his disciples, and he tells the crowd. Because now he he turns to them and he says, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. And then the disciples came to him and said, did you know that the Pharisees were offended by what you said? I, I, I thought that just a little bit humorous, and the fact that, yeah, it's going to because it gets to the heart and it exposes and it reveals the true intentions. I'm not poking fun at them. I'm just saying it's just, I find it a, a little bit amusing that in the, in the midst of an intense and heavy kind of a conversation that they make that kind of a statement and then Jesus kind of says um, are you also still without understanding? So one of the things that I want to bring out here then and the whole purpose of the, the law and revealing our condition in worship and <clears throat> in the importance of worship. Back in verse 9 there, 
It says, in vain they do worship me. Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, if, if you're going to do something in vain, if you take all your labors, all your energy, all your thinking, all your effort, all your time, and you could probably throw a few more all others in there, but the idea is that if everything that you do, and you do it to the, 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 with all your heart to the best of your ability, and it's in vain, how frustrating is that? How empty is that? How useless is that? That would be devastating. In vain. There's, there would be no point to it. There's nothing to be gained. So then he tells them that he tells them about it's not what goes into a, the mouth that defiles a man, a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. And then he makes another statement here. In verse 13, he says, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. So Jesus tells his disciples, Let them alone. Don't bother with them anymore. Let them alone. And he says, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. And immediately my mind went back to the parable of the tares and the wheat. There will come a day. There will. And on that day, they're going to be plucked up. And they will be separated and they're going to be cast into the fire. And then he makes this statement. They are blind guides. They are blind guides. You're not much of a guide if you're blind. Going back, going back to the thing about in vain, how effective can you be if you're blind? And you're supposed to be a guide? It's almost like a contradiction in terms. Forget about being a guide. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. So then he explains in verse, uh, <clears throat> but what comes out in verse 18, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So the solution to the defilement, the solution to the corrupt heart is what David prayed in the Old Testament in Psalm 51. What Jesus explained to Nicodemus about being born again, about receiving a new heart. In Psalm 51, David after he sins, he cries out, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me so that when we come to Christ, 
We become a new creation. We get a new heart. Whose aim, whose focus is hungry for, who yearns for, who wants to please the things of God, where death, where sin is no longer reigning, but the person who is reigning in there is Christ himself, who wants to nurture and build up that heart so that every day it has the opportunity to grow and walk and and, and taste and see the Lord's goodness and, and walk in newness of life. And as long as we're on this side of glory, he wants to continue to do that. To give it meat, to give it drink, to give drink that comes from him that satisfies the longings of our heart. To give bread. To nurture, to mature it, to where that we become and walk in excellence in being partakers of his divine nature. And so when Jesus has this conversation about being born again with Nicodemus, he says something that that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. There's no cross-pollinization there. No matter how hard you try to do in your own effort, it counts for naught. So that all the glory goes to the Lord. That no one can boast and that no one can brag because it's a gift of God. So just a couple things that I've, I just wanted to share here to encourage you with this, this new heart and doing new things. I like the book of Proverbs. And in Proverbs 15, there's a verse, verse 28. It says, the heart of the righteous. So this is a new heart. The heart of the righteous studies to answer. So that means it's not just going to go by the whims if you will, of the soul or the flesh. No, it's going to see what is the mind of the Lord, what is pleasing unto the Lord, what is the heart of the Lord. Because in that same, the verse right before, he talks about uh, there are those that they just let fly out of their mouth. There's no self-control. They just let it out. So it's a heart that seeks after, a heart that's hungry after. We we see that time and time again when, when David in the psalm says, As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after you. You alone are my heart's desire. So it's a heart that's fixed on God because it's from God and he watches over that which he's planted so going on in verse 20 verse 21 now after this uh, confrontation here with the Pharisees and the scribes Jesus goes North, way north, into Tyre, in the region of Tyre and Sidon. 
So this is, this is well into enemy territory. This is, this is going into Gentile land. This is going into the land where after they crossed, at, where Joshua takes the children of Israel into Canaan. And um, and it's here then these words as he as he goes in the land he's following in the, he's following in the footsteps of Elijah and Elisha here and when they went into that same region Elijah and Elisha both both encountered women who had a need. The one of them was a widow and the other one who had a son that, and Elisha had raised a son from the dead. And so in verse 22 we find this significant word and behold, behold, something significant is going to happen again here. A Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, have mercy O Lord, Son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. I just want you to think, as I, as I read through these words here, what would your response be to this? You know, as, as I read through this, we all have our different ideas about Jesus and how he responded to the hearts and needs of people in previous chapters and other places in the scripture. And this is a little bit unnerving if you, if you take it and look at it and the way it unfolds here. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, my daughter severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. Silence. The one who is the living word spoke not a word. And his disciples came and begged him saying, send her away for she's crying out after us. So now the disciples are wanting Jesus to intervene and act And, and heal her daughter so that, they, that she could be sent away. So Jesus answers. He answers the disciples. He doesn't answer her. He answers the disciples. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. another setback. My purpose is to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What would you do? What would I do? Just think about that. He's telling her why he came 
And basically, he's, he's not responding. In a roundabout way, I would dare say Jesus is telling her no. My purpose, my mission is clear. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. I like in the translation that Judy, uh, Judy, that Kathy read. My apologies. She, she comes and kneels, she worships the Lord. You know, it's, it's one thing for us to worship the Lord when everything is going right. It's another thing to worship the Lord when everything appears to be against us. Do you remember in the book of Job when one calamity after another after another came upon Job? As horrible as that and horrendous as that was, do you remember what Job's first response was? Yeah, that's true. It says that he, he fell and he worshiped the Lord. I am firmly convinced that something happens when you purpose to bend your heart, bend your knees, and, and worship the Lord in spite of what circumstances are trying to tell you what to do. And how the Lord meets you at that hard place. Has anybody ever been there besides me? I've had it to where the Lord gives me a worship song and I've, I've recognized that if the Lord puts a worship song in my heart, I'm not going to stop singing it until he reveals to me the reason and the purpose why he put that song in my heart. And he's been faithful to do that. And so... She says, she comes before him and kneels and says, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So now he adds insult to injury and he calls her a dog. But she's not phased by that. She doesn't argue the point. But instead, she agrees with the Lord and says, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So when he says, O woman, great is your faith, it took me back. It reminded me of the centurion where Jesus 
where the centurion said, hey, I'm a man under authority. You don't even, you're not, I'm not worthy for you to even come under my roof. Just say the word. And he said, what great faith. So here we say, so here he says, oh, woman, great is your faith. So the thing that I just want to point out here and the significance of this is her intentionality. She did not stop. She was persistent. She did not give up. She worshipped the Lord. And that intentionality that, that there was no place else for her to go. She knew the one who had the answer for the problem. So Jesus, so Jesus healed her, her daughter at that instant. And then Jesus leaves and uh, he goes up on a mountain and sits down. Now last time when Jesus went up on a mountain and sat down was on the Sermon on the Mount. And the significance of the sitting down, again, referencing back to uh, the end of Matthew chapter 7, he taught as one with authority. So here he is on the mountain with all authority, sitting down, and he is healing all those that, that come to him. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. I'm going to stop here, but there's, there's more. There's, there's significance in the mountains. And that's going, that's going to be made manifest in the up and coming chapters, but just let me just throw this out as a tidbit. The very first mountain that Jesus encounters is where Satan takes him up and tempts him and says, if you bow and worship me, I'll give you all this. The very last mountain that Jesus stands on is where he says, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. So, I would challenge you in the beginning chapters to look where he's, where there's a mountain and then at the end see where the other where there's another mountain and work your way to the middle so you got the first and the last the second and the sixth and you will see you'll see something unfolding there just some f- food for thought this week for you guys so in closing I just want to uh, I was reminded as I, I saw how Jesus confronted the Pharisees, how he healed the sick, how he's going to continue to do wondrous things, how he's going to push back against the darkness, how the gospel is going to be proclaimed with signs and wonders. And it made me think of a part of a, a worship song that we're familiar with. 
uh, I believe it's Hillsong, and it's what a wonderful name it is, the name of Jesus. And in that song, that worship song, it says, you have no rival, you have no equal. And it's true. It's true. He has no rival. He has no equal. And his kingdom is advancing. His kingdom is alive in us today and and speaking to us and giving us good things to eat today. So, having said that, I'm going to turn our hearts to a word of prayer and then we're going to go into communion. Lord, you're so good. You are great and you are awesome. You are good. You are God and you are great. And Lord, I just pray now that the things that were shared today, that they will prosper in our hearts, that they will change us from the inside out. Father, we fix our heart, we fix our eyes on you. You are the strength of our heart. You are our portion. You ordain all our days. And so, Father, I pray that as we we take communion here now, that you would meet with us And as we just heard about the children's bread from the crumbs falling from the table, Lord, as we partake of your body and your blood, I pray that you would touch our hearts in the places that need your touch, spirit, soul, and body. In Jesus' name, amen.